Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, men and women, non-conformers and non-believers, gender X and gender equals, welcome to Eat the Storms, the poetry podcast. I am your host, Damien B. Donnelly. Let me start today's show by thanking last week's guests, Thomas McCall, Vic Pickup, Sue Finch and Trish Bennett. And thank you all for joining us here today or tonight or tomorrow or whenever it is that you plump up your favourite cosy cushion and pop yourself into your comfy armchair and tune in in. Today we have a show devoted to diversity, with a mixed-race poet from Kuwait, a humanitarian who spent over two decades living in Africa, a nurse working on the front lines in Northern Ireland and a dragonfly lighting up Brighton and now Zoom rooms with spoken word events. And so with all these odysseys in mind, I am going to start today's show by reading a poem that won the first week's creative writing competition from Holding It Together Apart, an initiative started by the Dublin City Council during our first lockdown last year. It was around the time of Bloomsday and I had written a collection of poems inspired by James Joyce's Ulysses and this poem, Funny, the oddity of the Odyssey after Joyce, which I actually read on season one of the podcast, took first prize. And this week I was notified that the poem will feature in their upcoming anthology of short stories and poems. I was also very delighted when I woke up one morning last summer to hear the renowned former newsreader Anne Doyle reading this poem on a YouTube video they had made, which is currently still available to watch. This poem is called Funny, the oddity of the odyssey after Joyce. Funny, isn't it? Bathing, morning after waking like drowning the dream. Tasting, eating, drinking. Old pants out, new pants on, up, under, in between. Tightly tucked so as not to protrude, protract, put away. I'm always centre. Others are right or maybe left. Then coats, car. Blow someone a kiss or kiss yourself in the mirror if no one has lingered, stayed, stained the sheets with sweat or that something sweeter. And we're off, out, riding with the traffic, tightly tucked and now taunt, trying to get through the thoroughfare, the teasing, the tweezing, the twitching. The thinking about all the hours ticking. The tedium. The tick, the tit, the tat. The time I stayed and he left. The taxi where I held his hand while running through other traffic in another town. And then work. Greetings and coffees and doors and cubicles and pissings and shittings before chairs and desks and turning it all on and counting down to when you can turn it all off again. After the meetings and the lunches and more coffee and more cubicles and the odours and distractors and disruptors, protrusions and protractors and the tension of the pants still taut and all the thoughts in between. Buy milk. 
Remember not to smoke. Want to smoke. Smell smoke. Put it out. Go home. Cook. Shit. Shave. Shag or not. Or more. Or wish. Use her hands. His hands. Their hands. Your hands. Anyone's lips. Pants down over hips. Pull the curtains. Hit the light. Save the fucking dream you almost drowned this morning. Funny. Isn't it? Our first guest on today's show is a mixed-race poet and writer whose work focuses on social inequality throughout late modern society. He frequently travels and has spent most of his life in Kuwait jostling between the UK and America while developing a knack for all things culinary. He has been featured in over 100 international publications including Kuwait Times, Milky Way Magazine, Montana Mouthful, Twisted Vine, Pear Happened and is the co-founder of the beautiful Famidan Journal and I'm not just saying that because I had two poems in its inaugural issue. He is also the author of the Chet book, The Great Northern Journey, which I have now just ordered from Lazy Adventurer Publishing. And it is an honour to open today's show with his work. So please sit back and enjoy the musings of A. or Salandi. Hello, my name is A.R. Salandi. I'm a mixed race poet. Um, uh, with a background from Kuwait, uh, the United Kingdom and the United States. Uh, it's quite a mouthful. Um, and I've spent most of my life growing up in Kuwait. I was born in uh, Arizona and I went on to uh, spend most of my life here, as I said, but I've been to university in Amsterdam, the Universiteit van Amsterdam. And I'm now at the University of Bristol where I continue to study sociology. Um, my poetry tends to focus a lot on metaphor that is highly embedded and symptomatic of my life experience as a person of a mixed race background. Um, I've often struggled because, you know, when you have parents and grandparents who are from all different places and speak multiple languages and things, it's, it can be quite daunting to kind of fit in and find yourself. And I think a lot of my poetry tends to focus on, on you know, the aspects that kind of make me whole. So poems like Oma, you know, is are really, really important to me because they kind of characterize just the dysfunction that comes about when you are like third generation mixed race, um, you know, and second and third on both sides of my family. And it, it can be quite difficult. Uh, subjugation deals with the fact of being a child of a Kuwaiti woman um, and the rights that you do not derive from that and the battle that ensues and the racism and... Um, othering, if you will, in society, uh, whereas stormy weather is a little bit more of the rain. So in, in Kuwait, we've had many, many floods um, in the last few years. Some say it's climate change, which it likely is, um, but it's also the fact that our sewage system isn't capable of dealing with rain. So even when we get like a very light amount of rain compared to Western Europe, we uh, with the streets flood. And uh, it can be a little bit um, 
a bit dramatic. Some might say to have, you know, a few hundred millimeters and then you have a week off school and work because the whole country is flooded. But it really is something. So Stormy Weather is one of those um, type of interesting poems I felt, although fantastical in nature, had a lot of truth into it. Heartland really dealt with my my the American aspect of my being. So I was born in Arizona and, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm still, I guess, American in that context and my family are, are part American. So it's really important to me to kind of put forward my American history into a certain context because um, my background um, kind of, dict- I think background dictates who you are and my background is so varied. And although I haven't been back to the United States in years now, um, a lot of my family, most of my family, if you will, are still in the UK and the United States. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of important to me to kind of present that Americana beyond the political dimension that we're constantly bombarded with. And obviously there's a need for that, but the fact of the matter is there is so much more to America than what the media presents. You know what I mean? There's so much more positive, I think, for people to see. And I, I'm, I'm quite proud of my background. Um, and I'm proud that we've, you know, elected someone who represents that, that multicultural background. I mean, as, 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 a, as a grandchild of, of Caribbean immigrants to the United, to the United Kingdom, um, I can say that I'm really, really proud to see a Jamaican uh, and a mixed race vice president. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of my poetry tends to focus on that mixed race dimension, but I, I'm a person who kind of feels that my racial background shouldn't make up who I am. That's ironic, I guess, in saying everything I've just said, but I really feel that race doesn't make you whole. And that's my personal opinion. And I've experienced prejudice my entire life um, where I live, from other people. And I I think poetry has really given me the ability to have a voice in much the same way as sociology. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm really grateful to Damien for this opportunity. And I hope you all enjoy the poems. Um... Yeah, thank you so much. Oma. Others had family dinners so peaceful that it made me question just why grandmother would pit her children against one another and cry victim when they turned on her in cyclical betrayal of her own doing. Subjugation. A battle ensues in all corners of a vast world where men lay heavy-handed in their tyrannical suppression of all voices that seek to rise above the restraints that grow ever tighter around the necks and wrists of a separate world, fighting to forever break free from the mental subjugation so effortlessly imposed on an existence so simply unique that one may long to question why wealth becomes an alibi for the innate despotism of men who find peculiar pleasure in the enslavement of all those who dwell beyond the Western world or rather all those who should exist beyond the man-made borders of a one-sided truth, where ruthless exploitation is guised as modern progress and spiritual growth is sacrificed for profit. Stormy Weather Olden skies grow spiteful as worn country Cadillacs find themselves out on the open road to nowhere, But wind begins to overtake the nearest shelter, as the sky twists and turns and rages all the more indignant at its perceived abuse. But clouds thrash the earthen roads with downpour, violent and life-consuming too, as the shabby vehicles give way to a sky in search of retribution. 
but now a dull and humidity sets in as a shadow world descends upon muddy roads at rest so delicately decorated by cars and their corpses so suddenly taken. Heartland A roaring oven smolders as a golden casserole fills a day sullen with aromatic Americana, worn and homely. But rapturous are evening hours where lively, where lively skies jolt and undress in conspicuous land where amorous showers caress now dampened fields. But storm sirens lambast us still as brazen hail forces ground willing to submit in final mounting. Where dark skies fondle now silence lands, where only in dawn can bright skies give reprieve to a mother green. And a father awaiting a new season, far above the slow-changing grounds, where flowers and trees grow, a heavenly depiction of two intertwined in one. Our next guest is a cancer nurse and counsellor who lives in County Down in Northern Ireland, but thankfully for us in her spare time, she is also an extraordinary writer and spoken word performer. I must admit that I have yet to see her live as I've always been at some other Zoom event at the time, but this will soon change. Although I have been able to listen to the poems she's provided for this podcast and the honesty with which she reveals herself and the truth of her words is mesmerising. She has performed at the John Hewitt International Summer School, Flash Fiction Armagh, Eastside Arts Belfast, West Belfast Festival and in the Bramley Anthology Edition 1 and 2 and her other language anthology, along with many appearances on television and radio. Her poetry flows like a river wild and today we are featuring two of her poems, but she will be returning again on the Valentine Show weekend and later on an episode dedicated to Voices of Poetry in Ireland. But here today for the first time, I am so excited to be able to welcome to the podcast, Cathy Carson. Hi Damien. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share some of my work on your wonderful podcast. It's been such a gift to listen over the past weeks and hear you and others share poems. And thank you for building community for all of us. I wanted to wish you every success with the podcast, with your debut collection, Eat the Storms, and also your recent Stickleback, Considering Canvases with Boys. I hope you all enjoy what I bring to you today. I'm bringing you two pieces. Um, the first piece is called Bus Homework. It's about my English teacher in third year. And the second piece is 17 and it's about my mum. Thank you. For you, Miss Harvey, I did my homework on the bus. Let me be clear that I did not do school. School days were spent at home, healing from wounds inflicted by my father. My mother wounded herself and complicit in the lie would write in her best handwriting on note paper gift to her every year for her birthday. Dear teacher, please excuse Cathy's period of absence from school. She was taking care of me as I have been unwell. Yours sincerely, Mrs Gurley. The letters were never dated, never specific, which meant that a week of absence to let bruising turn from purple to green to brown to yellow to shadow could be extended by me 
tear out trips into town, long walks in parks and an unbelievably skilled waste of time. On the first day of third year, you stood at the top of the room in my English lesson. You were smaller than all of us. 23, 24 years old, perhaps, I remember thinking that you dressed like my gran. Catherine, can you read the next paragraph? The sniggering started instantly. I raised my head, cleared my fringe from my eyes, and every part of me sent you a silent message. Please, miss, do not make me read. Back then my consonants multiplied, my vowels disappeared and syllables had edges and paragraphs meant tears and I sent it again. Please miss, do not make me read. I held my breath. The nod when it came was almost imperceptible and was followed by Tracy Cassidy, read the next paragraph. I let the breath go. You said it's homework. I did not do you had never done homework. When your home is dangerous, when every part of your being is focused on not getting thrown into a wall or trying to process hours of verbal abuse, homework simply does not, cannot happen. But for you, Miss Harvey, I did my homework on the bus. In other lessons, I was at best disengaged, at worst disruptive. Letters were sent to my mother, but she had other things on her mind. But even on the weeks when I mitched, I would stride into English class each Monday and Thursday at 11am with the untouchable swagger of Al Capone. And she would read my homework out to the class. Bright red, capital A's, accompanied by smiles and affirmation until one Monday... The homework wasn't worthy of a bright red A. The cup had been slammed three times against the table at 2am. Calling me from my bed and six hours of berating humiliation and shame had followed so that the essay on the bus was virtually incoherent. Looking back, I can see that you tried to be so kind, placing it on my desk with a D facing down now. I know you can do better than this, you smiled. But at 14, I heard betrayal, criticism, rejection. The sense of exposure was brutal. Suddenly you could see all that my father could see and I could not look at you. I felt so foolish, embarrassed for believing that you believed in me. That Thursday, with her to turn to defiance, I sat at the back. Glared at you until you reddened. I handed in no homework. The following Monday you held me back at the end of class. I still remember my face aflame, eyes blistering from biting back tears and caught. I can still see you now. Hands clasped, crouching so low that your face looked up into mine. I was so disappointed not to get homework from you, Cathy. Do you know that I keep ears to the end? When I've read all the rest, I put the kettle on and get a chocolate biscuit and sit down to enjoy yours. I was so sad when yours wasn't there to read. I remember the swell of my chest, the rush of something warm that went from my feet to my forehead, trying to fight the smile and feeling like I would tell you the truth in that moment. But you didn't know that you should ask. 
you are really smart, you know. You can do anything you want. But my insides were stuffed full of my father's words. Retard, backward, can't string two words together so there was no room for years at that time. I would be 22 when I found them again, hidden like seeds in pockets of myself long since forgotten. Once planted, A-levels were followed by one degree, then another, then another, until I no longer had room inside myself for my father's words. At the end of third year, my school report was accompanied by a letter which went something like, Dear Mr and Mrs Gurley, We are concerned about Catherine's attendance and behaviour. She has had frequent and extended periods of absence. When she does attend class, she is often disruptive, at times aggressive towards both pupils and staff. Her English teacher states that she shows both interest and promise in this subject, but we are keen to discuss her future at the school, at your earliest convenience. But for you, Miss Harvey, I did my homework on the bus. Seventeen. It started with post-it notes that littered every surface of the living room, luminous squares of green and yellow that yelled repeated commands. Pay window cleaner, pay credit union, ring Cathy. Pay window cleaner, pay credit union, ring Cathy. Except the window cleaner never got paid, nor the credit union, and you never, ever rang me. Then there were the things that I told you that you forgot, and the things that you told me a thousand times. The day I visited during election time, and you closed the door in my face, telling me you were sick of Sinn Féin canvassers and you weren't voting that year. The time you bought me chocolates for my birthday, left the room, came back, thanked me for them, and ate every single one. You even ate the coffee ones, and you hated coffee. The phone calls in the small hours of the morning to tell me that you were worried Dad hadn't come home when Dad had been dead for five years. There were countless visits to the doctor, diagnosis of depression, anxiety, loneliness, bipolar disorder, psychosis, but none of them were helpful and none of them right. Ten years in elderly care told me what this was. This was dementia, but you were 48. You were found one night wandering in the rain in your nightdress, barefoot, soaked through. It took three months in a unit for them to decide that this was early onset dementia and three seconds for me to decide that you would live with me. On the first night you had a delirium that had you ripping the curtains from the rails, biting, thrashing, kicking, spitting, screaming, unable to find the bathroom, you sawed yourself. And you cried like a child. So I took you to your home, where you attacked me in the night, thinking I was an intruder. You thought I was stealing from you, and you phoned the police. Finally, after guilt that sucked the core from me, came an acceptance of sorts that I could not continue. And I placed you into care. We flattened into a shell of all that you had been, I admit. Visiting became painful, less frequent. 
I consoled myself with the thought that you would not remember if I had visited or not. In years past, I had already lost you. A phone call came to work one day to tell me you had been admitted to the hospital with a chest infection, where amidst your rage and delirium they told me you had terminal lung cancer. They transferred you to hospice. You were 59. I visited one day during music therapy, stood frozen in the doorway as I watched you dance in your chair to the music of the kinks. As much as your frailty would allow, and you were lit up with joy and youth and something I had never seen in you. Hope. As I approached you, turned to me, face full of mischief and said, I bloody love the kinks. Do you like them? I'm Keg New, what's your name? <laughs> you had introduced yourself with your maiden name. Something inside me folded. As I realised that this is who you were before my father broke you. But even in the moment I knew I was being a gift, I was meeting my mum before she was my mum. So I played along. You told me you were 17 and seeing a boy called Sam. We talked about the chip shop you went to and the music you loved and all the things your mother never let you do and you made me laugh so hard. You established a routine of sorts. I would arrive and find you vacant, unengaged. I would play the kinks and there you were. 17-year-old Cagney, I fell in love with you, with your cheek and your charm, your infectious laugh and your insatiable passion for the kinks. On the night I lost you the second time, the nurse said you had been distressed, call a night, unable to settle you, she had put on the music of the kinks and left the room. Seconds later, she went back to turn the volume down and find you gone. It still tickles me that as the kinks sang out, Oh yeah, you really got me. Someone came and got you. The medical records say you died aged 59. Me? I say different. Because the kinks were playing. You died aged 17. I am going to share with you now two of my own poems, one of which was inspired by the early daffodils that have already begun to shoot up out from under the soil that was still steeped in so much dampness that was last weekend steeped in so much snow. And another poem that considers the steps we take as we come together again to think about dancing. The first poem is called Quack. Solitude will guard gentle breath as I slip from darkened day to dream. Even if the daffodil, now almost bright upon the bank, comes despite concern. I smile as the memory of this kind-hearted bloom unfolds within the shadows of this stilled room. Here, where corners ponder the importance of a cell. In the distance, 
I hear a duck quack, and I return to the credit of comfort the pillow provides and close my eyes to the sounds of madness. This next short poem is called A Different Dance These Days. Learning how to walk again. How to breathe as if we'd been broken. A dance now still too daring. We come to the floor though on opposite sides and stay there. Positions have changed as if we were all poison. Our next poet joins us from Sussex and has recently completed a Master's in Creative Writing at the University of Brighton. Providing her with not only a voice, but also a wonderful community of fellow writers. Many of you will recognise her as one of the wonderful organisers of Dragonfly's Spoken Word, which she runs with fellow poet and former podcast guest Darren J. Beanie. Dragonfly's Spoken Word was originally an actual event based in Brighton, but is now a virtual event on Zoom and returns next month on the 16th of February with myself as a featured poet. So go and get your tickets now. You can find this guest on WordPress at walnuttreewriting.home.blog. She will have a poem coming soon in the Hedgehog Poetry Press anthology. And meanwhile, she's currently working on her first collection of poetry. So please welcome to the show, Barbara Mercer. Hello, everybody. Hello, Damien. I'd like to thank you very much, Damien, for inviting me to contribute to your wonderful podcast. It's a real honour. I have four poems for you today. They move between work I've been doing that captures lost family members and my most recent work, which is tending more towards fantasy. I hope you enjoy them. My first poem is dedicated to my great uncle Frank, who moved out of smoggy London to sunny Sidmouth at the advice of his doctor in the late 1950s. It's called Doctor's Orders. He basks in firm canvas, the sun still a warm velvet cloak on the ozone prescribed. Air made melodious by the distant brass band and hushed clip of correct voices. The city he once swore was his, still loiters in his lungs, buried in bomb dust, black ruin and soot, subject to gravity like these crumbling red cliffs and wheezing rhythmic tides. Summer's flurry of children's voices is running out in the wash and rush, though he watches gulls sweep crying overhead. There is too much clay in him to fly. My second poem is about family too, but in a rather different way. It's called the weight of furniture. Eventually, that glossy dining table got sawn up. Not the table's fault. 
It didn't sell itself to your mum and dad, or how around by choice, their 70s pride and joy. Pledge to officiate at fraught family meals, witness to roll of dice, pout of losers, dramatic showdowns, slapped faces, full-on accusations. It didn't collude in secrets, though I guess it saw a few. It didn't choose whose side to take. It just got carried away, until it was ours, until it was one of two dining tables, and we had to make a choice. It didn't expect the chop. It could have served others well, but I found you in the garden with a chainsaw and bits of table by your feet. My third poem is inspired by the beautiful tree that grows in my garden. New carpet. The floor is strewn with leaves. I don't know who brought them in or why they are laid out like tiles. My bare feet stick to them slightly as I walk across the room, trying to escape their summer strength. I sit down discouraged, look closer to single leaf, bigger than my hand. My walnut tree taps at the window, looking for his clothes. And finally, my last poem is part of a sequence in writing about the seasons. The cold-hearted bastard stirs and mumbles in his sleep, restlessly twisting his limbs in crisp white linen. His dreams seem all the same lately. Endless corridors, locked doors, misted windows rendering him blind. He feels heavy, weighed down, doped by a pleasant warmth, a languor unlike him. He feels no urgency, no sharp bite of anticipation. He has a job to do somewhere, sometime. Must shake Lucy's shackles, drive out this numbing balm. Damn it, he's the god of frost. He drives icicles through the world's heart and hardens the earth, turns seas solid, takes a firm hand with glaciers, tends to avalanches. He's an artist with snowflakes, a murderer with chill. His is the fish, visible, static and frozen in lake ice. His, the crunch of footsteps on a cold day given. His, the hunt across the frozen waste. He raises his mighty fist, Glass rhymes and cracks. He gets out. This time. So thank you so much for listening. And once again, thank you so much for inviting me, Damien. Thank you. final guest on today's show works in development, humanitarianism and peacebuilding and spent two decades living in Africa. He is an associate of the Peaceful Change Initiative, which works to break cycles of violent conflict and build the mechanisms and relationships that support long term peace. He wrote poetry as a child and again in his 20s whilst living in Sudan and Lesotho, but took a break after marriage and children, although thankfully he really did return to the pen and the page in 2012. 
He currently lives in the UK, is the author of the micro collection This Quieter Shore, published by the Hedgehog Poetry Press, and the full collection Poetry After Auschwitz, published by the Sentinel Poetry Books. A collection that took second place in the 2018 Sentinel Poetry Book Prize, and you are about to see why. Please welcome to the podcast, Phil Vernon. Thanks, Damien. It was really kind of you to invite me. You've had some brilliant poets on your podcast, and I feel honoured to be included. I also loved your own collection, Eat the Storms. There are some really beautiful and some very emotional poems in there. The three poems I'll read are all in my own first collection, Poetry After Auschwitz, published in 2020 by Sentinel. The title of the book, Poetry After Auschwitz, refers to the well-known quote from Theodor Adorno that writing poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. In the same essay, which he wrote around the end of the Second World War, a war in which so many of his own family and friends had perished, he also said, that all culture shares the guilt of society. Many of my poems explore the darker sides of humanity, colonialism, conflict, domestic violence, genocide, to name a few. So Adorno's views seemed very relevant. Is it okay, I wondered, to write what aspires to be beautiful poetry? And often, about very difficult subjects, while so much hurt is still being done around me in the name of the society from which I personally benefit. I thought about this a lot. In the end, it seemed okay, but the issues by no means closed in my mind. It's something on which I continue to reflect. So the first poem I'll read is the titled poem from the book poetry after Auschwitz and it comes with a short epigram which is poetry is pointless like kicking a stone which is something that was overheard at a poetry event. Poetry after Auschwitz. At the start and the end of this long straight road a silent child a house in flames a leafless tree an empty town. He kicks a stone to watch it leap and skitter on the flattened clay, then slow and stall and go to ground. Along the forest edge stand those he's failed to save. He sings his song. His unknown patrons hear no sound. And yet he feels their silence deep beneath his feet and sees beyond the tree, the child, the house, the town. Not all of my poems are about sort of big societal issues. Um, A lot of them are much more personal. And the second poem I'll read is Wedding Day, written after 30 odd years of, of marriage. 
This poem previously appeared in a stickleback micro-collection called This Quiet Ashore, which was published by the wonderful Hedgehog Poetry Press, which, Damien, you're very familiar with, since it's your own publisher. So, wedding day. Look at us then, my buttonhole, your pearls, your hand in mine, our smiles with energy enough to make the harbour flags unfurl. And as we placed our hands upon the wheel, we chose our course and when to put to sea. Our wedding gifts were lost in violence. The boat flung us like flotsam as she heeled and plunged. With reckless seamanship, with senseless will, with ragged sails, we pitched our way and frightened crew through torment and ordeal. Look at us now. Our boat survived the storms, scraped past the reef, and, limping to this bay, fetched us together on this quieter shore, our weathered hands guiding the wheel no more, but touching one another when they may. And the third poem is called Winter Gardens. And it seems to be a poem of reconciliation. I think it is a poem of reconciliation. You see your gardens in the space between the plants. Pull every weed without a trace, lest it disturb the balance of your scheme. Deadhead each stem before its flower fades. Lift every labelled bulb to plant again and prune your trees and shrubs as each dictates. I grow my plants so close they all complain they've insufficient room to breathe or sun to drench their leaves or share of summer rain. Let young weeds grow to be what they become and poppy stems and seed heads twist and dry then rot when frost and winter rainfall come. I watched you tend your silence constantly, then found a careless way to nurture mine. We've made our different landscapes home, and still we touch each other's quiet awkwardly. But looking now, when winter's worked its spell of levelling, our gardens seem as one. As we are now winding down to the end of today's show, I would just like to give a couple of shout outs. And the first is to bestmusic.ie for their speedy delivery of my new microphone, which is the shiny revelator from Personas. And it is a joy to use it as I'm recording it now. And yet you cannot hear a single car, truck or lorry that is flying past me on this supposedly country road in Dublin. This means, of course, no more recording in the bottom of closets. Another shout out goes to Holding It Together Apart, the initiative from the Dublin City Council, which you can find online hosting workshops, competitions, including creative writing competitions. And their anthology, as I mentioned earlier, will be coming out later this year of prose and poetry, including my poem, Funny, the Oddity of the Odyssey After Joyce. And speaking of all things that are coming up, a wee note to remind you all that tomorrow is the final day for submissions to the beloved Black Bow Poetry and their Christmas Winter 2021-22 call-out for micro-poetry. So get your pens poised and a festive twinkle back into that thinking cap.
Meanwhile, of course, my own debut poetry pamphlet, Eat the Storms, published last year by the Hedgehog Poetry Press, and my new limited edition Stickleback collection of poetry are available to buy, and details of where to buy that, and for details of all the guests on today's show and every show, go to eatthestorms.com and the podcast section. As a final poem on today's show, I am going to circle us back to the beginning of our journey and read another poem similar to that funny The Odyssey of the Odyssey. Another day in the life of poem, if you will. Going through, getting through, making it through, reaching out for hope, for a hold, for whatever gets you through. And these days we need as much hope as possible to get us through. This poem is called New Day. Bright light. New day already parched before starting out. Twisting through sweaty sheets I need to shake. Stretching up, out, over, to the other side. That side. Your side. Colder now than before. Than earlier. Than yesterday. The day before. The day before that and the day before that again. Before you left. Bright light. Bollocks into boxers. Then into the bog and the bath before breakfast and then the bullshit into the briefcase. The extra toast into the toaster. (laughs) Funny what you forget. Bright light. New day in the hallway. Another day and counting. Reaching for my jacket, for my hat, for my scarf, for my key by the ashtray and, and stop. Stillness. Silence. And nothing and all and everything lying there. Next to your keys, lying there by the ashtray. Your keys on a keyring I gave you with a picture of a man lassoing the moon that you gave back after I'd caught you that moon. A reminder of all that will never come back through that door. Even if I don't wash the sheets. Even if I still make you toast. Though you are gone. These are not the souvenirs to save. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and men and women, non-conformers and non-believers, gender X and gender equals, we have reached the end of another episode of Eat the Storms, the poetry podcast. I have been your host, Damien B. Donnelly, and a huge thank you to all my guests on today's show, Anthony Orsalandi, Barbara Mercer, Kathy Carson and Phil Vernon. For details of all our guests on this show and all the episodes, please go to www.eatthestorms.com, click on the podcast section and you will find all their links and details. Anthony Orsalandi is the co-founder of the Famidan Journal and the author of The Great Northern Journey. 
Barbara Mercer is the host of Dragonfly Spoken Word, which returns on the 16th of February. Phil Vernon is the author of Poetry After Auschwitz, and do check out Cathy Corson when she goes live on Zoom. In the meantime, if you have any questions, considerations, comments, if you want to be a part of the show or just share your love of this podcast, then please drop me an email at eatthestorms at yahoo.com. I will be back again next week. There will be a Valentine weekend's show coming up very soon and another episode featuring poetry on this island of Ireland. So from me, Damien B. Donnelly, take care, be safe, be well, wear a mask, wash your hands, keep your distance, most of all shine a light wherever possible and of course, as always, stay bloody poetic.